You know, I was thinking about the fact yesterday that every week I get up here and I try to express to you all that which is essentially inexpressible. I mean, it, it's so interesting, the process here. We're trying to use words. We're trying to use images. We're trying to use uh, some sort of logical thought process to describe something that is inherently completely on the other side. The, the spiritual journey is non-rational. <laughs> this spiritual journey is, um, is experiential. It's, it's heart-to-heart. It, it's amazing that everything that I thought it was when I started out, it turned out not to be. Everything I wanted it to be, it turned out not to be. You know, um, It's kind of like, as a kid, when you go in and you... Uh, uh, Christmas morning, and you have all the presents open, and they're a mystery, and you don't know what they are, and you're trying to figure out, and you shake them, and, and maybe you try to tear off a little piece of paper, and you take a peek and everything, but the mystery keeps you going. It's the mystery that keeps you interested, and that mystery can keep you going and interested indefinitely. Of course, on, on Christmas morning, you tear open the packages, and you get to your present, you know, and the, and the present, the toy, can interest you for just so long, but it's the mystery It's the unknowing that really engages us, animates us, and draws us further in. Like watching a movie, you know? It's that first half of not knowing what's going on and starting to get drawn into characters and and all this mystery. When it it finally comes around and you find out what it's about, it's like, oh, well, okay. Sometimes the ending is not so good, but you're drawn through because you don't know what's going on. God is like that. Life is like that. The spiritual journey is all about that. It's about embracing the unknowing. There are certain things in this life that we can't know. We will never know. We spend all our time trying to figure it out, you know, trying to put a a pin through it and put it under glass, but that's not the way this journey works. It really is an embrace and a celebration of the things that we can't know. And so the words that we speak here, what I speak, anybody speaks, the words that you read out of books Even the Bible, it points to an ultimate reality. But the words themselves are not the reality. And it's so important for us to remember that. The words that we speak here, the things that we try to do in community or in a group session like this, they can point, they can evoke, and most hopefully they will motivate you, each of you, each of us, to engage this journey. Because the words can never fully describe. And the moment that you think you have it all figured out, you're off the path again. The moment you think it's all right here, you've fully described this thing, now it's dead. It's not moving anymore. God's spirit is always moving. And as soon as it stops, as soon as you think you've got it, it's over. And so this is what we're trying to do in here. And it's, it's a challenge. Trying to come up with ways to continue to point to continue to evoke and to motivate, but that is what um, this chair is supposed to be about. And so here we go again. We're going to do it again this morning. Now, last week, tried to come up with a way of describing to you what the effect is all about, the kind of the method behind the madness. And we were trying to figure out it in terms of who and what and why. What is, the, what is it we're trying to do here? How do we do it? And there are four main headlines, more, four main points that I made, and they're in your bulletin again this week, And I want to kind of start there and then move off on the second one. There are four things that we're always trying to do for anyone who walks in that door at the effect. The first thing is we want to help them find acceptance. And we talked about this at length last week because acceptance is the ground of all being. Acceptance is the good news that Jesus was talking about. The fact that we are already acceptable. We are worthy of acceptance. We are worthy of connection. We are worthy of love just because we're sitting here breathing and for no other reason. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to accomplish anything. There's no bar that you need to hit. And see, we haven't been taught that, especially not in Western Christianity and the Western church. It has always been about laws and rules and things and morality and codes and and even practices and liturgy and ritual that we needed to do in order to be acceptable to God. But if you really read what Jesus is saying, he's saying, the kingdom is here. I represent the end of all requirements. 
The cross represents the end of all requirements. The way is completely open. God is completely accessible. We are lovable just as we are. And so we try to telegraph that by accepting everyone who comes into our midst as they are with no preconditions, with no expectations of change. We will help them if they want to be helped, but if they just want to sit here, they can. So starting, starting to model that, to begin to evoke the first inklings of a person's personal acceptability is the, main, is the first task. And then the next part moves over to the other person. We want to help them get involved, help them to begin to participate Jesus always said, repent and believe, right? The kingdom is here. The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe the good news. Which good news? The one we're just talking about. But we have different ideas about repent and believe. To us, repentance is regret. It's an act of contrition. It's feeling contrite. It's feeling guilty. But in the ancient world, the primary meaning of repentance was simply to change directions you're going this direction, you're going off a cliff, just stop, change directions, and go another one, and you'll be saved. So to change directions, stop doing the dysfunctional things, stop doing the harmful things, the compulsive things, stop doing them long enough that you will have a chance not to believe with your head. Because that word for belief, whether it's in Aramaic or Greek, is always a combination of belief, faith, and trust. Belief is the idea that allows us to take the first risky action. The action is the faith. And the faith, the risky action done in a direction consistently over time will do the next thing, which is build the trust. Trust is the goal. Trust is the freedom. Trust when we actually trust something. It's where the fear dissipates, where the stress goes away, and we just know that something is trustworthy. And the only way we know that is through repeated experience of trustworthiness. But once that comes, then the need for compulsion, the need to be on the hamster wheel, constantly trying to do better, to be good enough, dissipates. That is the freedom that Jesus is talking about. And once that takes place, then we can begin to live the effect of God's love. And what is the effect of God's love? It's the love that we show for each other. We can only love because he first loved us. The effect of God's love is our ability to love as God loves. That's the effect. That's what we want to live. These are the four things that we're trying to get across here in everything that we do, whether it's verbally or whether it's non-verbally. We call to mind Francis of Assisi, preach the good news always, continuously, use words where necessary. In other words, if we're not living it, there's no point in speaking it. And if we live it, most of the time we don't have to speak it. That's the way this thing works. And so if you notice, the points lead to the second point and then they flow from the second point. But everything is geared toward the getting involved part, which we can talk about as participation. If we don't participate, then nothing is going to happen. Participation, getting involved is a fulcrum on which all these other things balance that we're talking about. Now, you won't get involved in a group, you won't participate in a group until you start to feel that you're at least somewhat accepted in the group, wouldn't you say? You know? At least conditionally, at least you're in the door, at least there's a seat at the table for you, and now you can begin to participate. But you won't really know that you are fully accepted until you participate, until you get involved. If you want to think about it this way, all relationship is participation, isn't it? All relationship, all connection is based and revolves around participation. You don't participate in a relationship, you don't have a relationship. If you don't get involved in a relationship, you don't have a relationship. And if you really are going to get involved, if you really are going to have the community and the accountability, then your participation also includes vulnerability. It includes transparency and honesty and opening up and letting people see you as you are. Now you have real relationship, the beginnings of trust that can actually set you free. And so we need to take a look at what are the elements 
of this participation? What does it look like? And I gave you five points last week, and I want to give them to you again. They're community, being a part of a group, but not just being a part of the group, not just being a wallflower, but actually being accountable to the group, which means you have opened up, which means you've let someone see you and get inside your skin enough so that they know when you're going sideways, right, center, left, and can help you get back on course. And you've given them permission to be able to guide you and be the guide rails on the, on the path that you are seeking. And vice versa. So that community with accountability, it's kind of community on steroids, if you will. Community with accountability. There has to be structure. There has to be something going on. Not only something going on, but something that goes on regularly. It has to really be structured. And within that structure, you need discipline. And someone asked me about this. This isn't discipline like you're being disciplined, like you're being punished for something you did. No, this is the internal discipline that moves from the inside out that keeps you showing up to the structure. Ain't no good to have any structure if you're not showing up to the structure and showing up repeatedly. You've got to be showing up. And so once again, that's structure on steroids because the discipline is what's keeping you engaged in whatever is going on. And this could be anything. It could be any group, really. Many of you are in 12-step groups. It has the same function there, the same points to it. But it could be uh, a hiking group. It could be a book club. It could be chess club. You know, it's community with accountability. It's structure. It's discipline. And then, of course, finally, there's service. Some place where you can give things back, where you can complete the circuit, where you can start practicing the servant leadership that Jesus was all about. And so these are the elements of participation. And all of them are going to be based in openness and honesty, transparency, vulnerability. Because without that sense of acceptance that you won't get until you've finally opened up, let people see you as you are, and when they don't run screaming from the room, you realize, I'm accepted as I am right now, unconditionally, with all my imperfections, without something that I have to run around and try to do. So now I suppose the next question would be, participating in what? What are we participating in? Is it faith? Yeah. But I think a better way to look at this is that participation is faith. Because faith is action. It's not a thought in your head that you think. It's what you do with a thought in your head. Then we talked about it isn't so important what you believe. What difference does it make that you believe? That's where the faith comes in. What are you doing differently? What are you changing? That's what the faith is. I wanted to read from Paul, believe it or not. Get into Paul here. Galatians 3. Take a look there. I'm sure Brandon is getting it up on the screen. A screen where a cyclops today. This one went down. Um, Galatians 3, verses 23 to 26. Paul says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up or imprisoned or shut off from the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so faith is action, not thought. We talked about that. All right? But what Paul is telling us is there's a difference between the action of faith and the action of obedience. Do you see where he's going with this? There's a difference between the action of faith and the action of obedience. I want to read a little bit from uh, Richard Rohr. And a friend just sent this to me yesterday, and it just popped in. It's like, oh, wow, must be on the right place. Because what Paul is talking about is that obedience is not faith. Obedience is not faith. They are two separate things. Why? Because obedience is fear-based. Why do you obey? Why do you obey someone's rules? Why do you obey the law? Well, one, you're afraid of the punishment that's going to happen if you don't. Or second, you're afraid you're not going to get the reward that you want if you don't. And so you do. But that has nothing to do with faith. Obedience is fear-based, and therefore, because it's fear-based, keeps us closed off to faith, which is love-based. Very different principle. 
Obedience works from the outside in, conformance. Faith works from the inside out, transformance. Jesus has nothing to do with conformance. You will see that over and over again. Trying to get us to realize it's not about following rules. It's about something that transforms from the inside. But he also said, I'm not going to abolish the law. The law will be fulfilled, but it'll be fulfilled in faith. It'll be fulfilled from the inside out in transformance. But the law is still a first step. The law is this tutor that Paul is talking about. Training wheels on the bike is the image I like. It's training wheels on the bike that'll keep you going in a good direction. The law points us in a good direction. But most importantly, you know what the law does? It gets us participating. It starts us getting involved. There is something that we do, and we do regularly, within the community, with the accountability, and the structure, and the discipline, and the service. It's all there. But if we just stay stuck there, obeying, fear-based, we will never get where Jesus is trying to get us to go. So here's Richard Rohr's thoughts. Although Jesus' message of full and final participation was periodically enjoyed and taught by many unknown saints and mystics, the vast majority of Christians made Christianity into a set of morals and rituals instead of an all-embracing mysticism of the present moment. Now there's that word again, mystic and mysticism. And for a lot of you who are hearing, maybe for the first time, that rings all the bells because you're immediately equating mysticism with occult practice. And that's what the, uh, the Western church and conservative church has done is kind of conflate the two. But that's not what we mean when we say mystic. For us, a mystic is someone who believes that a direct encounter with God is possible, that a heart-to-heart connection with God is possible. When the thoughts and the intellect is set aside, what we can do is deeply connect, that prayer can be a wordless exchange between us and God. That's it. That's all we're talking about. I think most of us can get behind that. Most of us have probably experienced that. So if there is any tick in you about mysticism, when he says about embracing the mysticism of the present moment, he's talking about being fully present to the present moment, to the presence of God in each moment. Moralism, as opposed to healthy morality, is the reliance on largely arbitrary purity codes, rituals, and dutiful requirements that are framed as prerequisites for enlightenment. Every group and individual usually begins this way, and I guess it's understandable. Training wheels again. People look for something visible, seemingly demanding, and socially affirming to do or not do, rather than undergo a radical transformation of the mind and heart, which goes from the inside out. It is no wonder that Jesus so strongly warns us against public prayer, public acts of generosity, and visible fasting in his Sermon on the Mount. Yet that's what we still do. Any external behavior that puts you on moral high ground is always dangerous to the ego because, as Jesus says, you have received your reward in full, right? Moralism and ritualism allow you to be independently good without the love and mercy of God and without being of service to anybody else, for that matter. That's a far cry from the full and final participation we see Jesus offering or any outpouring of love of the Trinity. Our carrot or stick approach to religion is revealed by the fact that one is never quite pure enough, holy enough, or loyal enough for the presiding group. Obedience is normally a higher virtue than love. The good news of a spirit-based morality is that you are not motivated by any outside reward or punishment, but actually by participating in the mystery itself. You know, so much of what he's saying here rings so true, I hope, with you. This idea that we can be good, independent of any participation because we think the right thoughts, because we have believed and assented, affirmed the right creed. It's kind of like we can be good without getting our uniforms dirty. you know. But there's no way to do that. Goodness is in the service. Goodness is in the connection. Not the service itself as just some sort of good deed, but the service that is motivated because of the unity that we feel with the person that we are serving. Mother Teresa said it beautifully, and I know I've quoted this before, but she said, much easier to love someone halfway around the world than the person who's right in your own home. Because we can love someone halfway around the world 
by supporting a cause, sending a check, and we don't have to get our uniforms dirty. But the person that we love who's right in front of us, man, that's a messy affair. That's frightening. That's risky. That's something we don't want to do. Carrots are neither needed nor helpful. It is God who, for God's own loving purpose, puts both the will and the action into you. It's not mere rule-following behavior, but your actual identity that is radically changing you. Henceforth, you do things because they are true, not because you have to or you're afraid of punishment. Now, you are not so much driven from without, the false self-method, outside in, but you are drawn from within, the true self-method. The generating motor is inside you now instead of a lure or a threat from outside. Now let's get back to Galatians again, if you just take that into consideration. The action of faith that Paul is talking about, beginning with a sense of acceptance and love, makes us equals sons of God. That's what he's saying here. Where is it? The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. Many scholars believe that faith in Jesus would better be translated by the faith of Jesus. Now that may seem like a simple change of prepositions, but it changes everything. Because if we become sons of God, if we become acceptable, sons of God in that culture meant that you are heirs to everything. You are part of the family. Not only do you have a seat at the table, but you have permission to partake in all of the abundance of the estate of the Father. To be that through faith in Jesus means that we are believing something about Jesus that makes us acceptable. But if we are sons of God, daughters of God, because we are participating in the faith of Jesus, do you see how that changes everything? I truly believe that that would be the better translation because everything Jesus talks about, everything Paul talks about, is about participation in, being a part of, living this out, not just understanding it intellectually. Once again, faith in Jesus keeps our uniforms clean. Faith in Jesus keeps us arm's length apart from all that messy stuff. We just believe in the cross. We just believe in Jesus. And then all these things accrue. But to participate in the faith of is to live as he lived, which is exactly what Jesus said. If you're really going to be my followers, then you need to follow my lead, follow my way. Live as I live, love as I love, relate as I relate. Become vulnerable, become servants of all, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free because you will trust for the first time, and the fear will dissipate, and the need for compulsion, compulsive activities will start to drop. This is what is trying to get across here, this idea. And justification, I know that sounds more like uh, you know, guilt and law and all of that, but what it means that we will be shown, we will be proven to be the children of God that we weren't quite sure we were before. Or as Jesus says better, we will finally see God in all our moments. See God in everything that we do and everything that we are. So the next question would be, if it were me asking, and I hope it's you too, how does participation work? How does it work? What do, what do we do? What's, what's the... What's all the inner workings and the mechanisms of this thing? I always want to know that. You know, you tell me all this great stuff abstractly. What do I do when I walk out that door? Well, I think I'm going to have to use myself as an example. I remember when I was um, in pastoral training, the uh, the pastor who was uh, was directing me. He was telling us about sermons and what to do and what not to do. He had a lot of rules. Now that I think about it about sermons and everything else. But he said, never use yourself as a sermon illustration. Well, if you've known me very long, you know that I've never met a rule that I didn't think was made to be broken, so um, I usually do the opposite. But what else do I have to go on, you know, but my own experience that I can hopefully relate to you in a way that will make sense, will resonate? I can see the danger in it, you know. 
Sometimes it can be a matter of self-aggrandizement, trying to make myself, hold myself up as some sort of paragon. And believe me, I am not a paragon of anything. Um, or maybe I deprecate myself and, and uh, I'm no longer the, uh, the figure that you need to listen to with any sort of authority. But here we go anyway. <sighs> Having said all of that. You know, it was funny. I walked out into the courtyard, um, I think it was just Friday, and uh, the, uh, one of the AA meetings, one of the stag AA meetings, all the guys were pouring out. And so I got to talking to them, and there was a little circle of us standing there talking. We were just having the best time and talking. Finally, one of, them, one of them says, you know, you ought to just become an alcoholic so you can be part of the club. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, what I, what I, the next thing I told them is, you know, I am part of the club, you know. Although I may not be an alcoholic, although I may not be a substance abuser, I'm telling you, I am recovering as much as anybody else who goes to 12-step meetings. I am recovering as much as any of you. And that came to me so strongly as I started working in recovery. Everyone is recovering from something. And the way through, it's always the same. And that's the beauty of it. Whatever brought us to the broken place, whatever brought us to the compulsive place, the way out and the way through is always the same. It's participation in the faith of Jesus. It's participation in the way that he lived as if certain things were true, finding out that they are true. And so I'm not holding myself up as any kind of paragraph, but after 25 years, almost 30 years of this, you know, I've learned a few things, things that you may not have experienced yet. And so one of those things is that participation in faith is not a single event. It's not a single choice. We would love it to be so. We would love there just to be a switch that we could flip and suddenly we are living in faith. Suddenly everything changes. You know, we want that. It's just a pill I can take or, or a confession I can go to or something that will just change me once and for all. And we think, yeah, that's the way it's going to be. I can just change and I'm just going to be this way. But it's more like urban warfare, house by house and block by block. You know, when armies come and they collide on the field of battle, there's one big battle and someone's standing and someone's down at the end of it and it's over. But when you're going through urban warfare in a town, you're clearing each house and each block and then the next house and the next block. And then maybe somebody comes back in back here and you've got to go back. You know, it's not neat. It's not orderly. It's not an event. Participation in kingdom, living in kingdom, is a moment-by-moment choice that we make or not. All of us sitting here right now have the choice to make, to be here, to be present, to let go of all the things that are dogging us, all the things that are, are making this an uncomfortable or a bad moment. We have that choice. Because this moment is okay. For the most part, temperature is good, you got your coffee, you know, everything is fine. If you let it be, if we choose to be here now, if we choose to really look in the eyes of the person that we're talking to at the moment, see them, be a part of them, and then see God's presence, unseen presence in this network and this connection, that's our choice. And then the next moment, we may not make that choice. Maybe in the next moment, something hits us so hard that we can't be present, the pain is too great, and we pull back into that fetal position, that defensive ball. And then the next moment we break through again. This faith life is much more like a string of pearls that you add one pearl at a time to every time you choose for participation, for presence, for kingdom, until you have something that looks like a journey, looks like a path, but really it's made up of one moment at a time. And I don't believe that ever ends. No matter how evolved you get, no matter how far you think you are down that path, you need to be choosing every moment. I choose every moment. I have to. Because if I just let a few moments by without consciously choosing to be here now, then the thing goes away. Now, does that mean it's a constant drag? It's constant difficulty? It's like, no. After a while, it becomes muscle memory. It becomes a part of who you are. But when things hit you and hit you hard or hit you repeatedly... It's easy to get off the track and then you need to pull yourself back. This is something that I've had to learn. Moment by moment choices. And I'll tell you what, these last few months, 
I think this has been the hardest start of a year that I might have ever experienced in my life. You know, it has just been one thing after another. It was funny. Um, someone asked me at our last book study if I believed in spiritual warfare, <laughs> and I said, "Well, I don't disbelieve in it." And I'll tell you what. Just given by the last four months' activity, it sure feels like spiritual warfare. I mean, just it couldn't be a more concerted and dedicated attack, one thing after another. You know, I tend not to look at the world that way. I tend to look at just focus on God, and all else can, you know, get dissipated. But it feels that way, and there, I'm sure all of you have felt at times like Job. You know, what in the world is going on here? But if you think about the beginning of the year, the very beginning of the year, the major insurance carrier that was paying all of our claims in our treatment center decided to launch an investigation and just stop paying claims. You know, and we're spinning around trying to deal with all that and figuring out what to do. And before we even had time to really fully react or see what was going on or the consequences of, of that, um, one of our dear friends and a, and a staff member committed suicide. And then we are thrown into another tizzy and we're dealing with that. And as we're just, you know, getting up to the memorial service and trying to get that all planned, then another ex-staff member and a friend of ours high on meth lights a fire upstairs, causes the flood, and then throws us into another crazy period. And just as we're getting everything back in shape and everything moving well, we realize that another major carrier is, is also not paying or hadn't been paying, and we kept expecting the money to come in. And so in the last two weeks, we've had to go into emergency mode and basically cut the treatment center in half. We had to lay off half our staff. We had to take half of our clients and get them transferred to other treatment centers just to get our overhead down enough so that we could survive, hopefully, another 60 days and hope that money starts coming in, changing the mix of policies. This has been so wrenching. I can't even tell you how wrenching it's been for the last two weeks. Having to let such good people go. We, our staff had finally come into real focus, and these people were so good, and to have to lay them off, to have to give them their last check on Friday. And these clients, I'll tell you, we had the greatest group of clients. I just loved each and every one of them. And to have to transfer them off before they would normally have out of our program was just as painful. And so Friday was the day that uh, most of the transfers were happening with the staff and uh, with the clients, and the staff was going to get laid off and notified and last checks and all of that. And I'll tell you what, I would rather have been anywhere but here on Friday. I would rather have stuck needles in my eyes than come here on Friday. I just wanted to stay in bed and pull up the covers. you know. But I had a 10 a.m. Um, group session with our clients and and of course I knew I needed to be here so I showed up and once I showed up I wanted to hide in my office I didn't want to see anybody or talk to anybody because I felt so bad you know but what I did was I forced myself to come down into the courtyard and as soon as I hit the courtyard and the clients were all there I just started walking up to them one at a time I gave them steady eye contact I talked to them I heard what they had to say and we hugged and, and we you know, cried and we did whatever we did. But I engaged. I chose to engage. And then going into the group session, again, choosing to engage. And it was amazing how these little encounters that were happening as I engaged, as I chose to go ahead and participate, that were coming back and reaffirming and giving me some wind back under my wings. Our clients were so gracious. Yeah, they were stressed and they were thrown this way and that. But as we were talking, they were still grateful that they were able to come here. They were hopeful about the change that they were making. You know, there was forgiveness in their tone and in their in their faces without having to say so. But it felt like the connection was still there; that it wasn't completely lost. And our staff, oh my gosh, they are such good people, and they expressed the same thing. One of them said, "I am better." for having worked here than I was when I came here. He also said, I've got three job offers already. <laughs> you know. But he said, no, you guys have given me so much. I believe in this. And he said, if you ever get back on your feet, call me. I want to come back. Another girl said the same thing. And it was just in each one of those conversations, and I sought each staff member out so we could have a private just you know, conversation together. It reaffirmed. It showed me that the connection was not completely lost, even though I won't be seeing them every day, which is heartbreaking. But the choice to reconnect, 
conversation by conversation, moment by moment, is what brought me back from the brink. And even though I didn't want to come in, I couldn't tell you how grateful I was that I did. And I was able to have all of those connections. And then there was yesterday. Back at home again, alone, Marion took our, our youngest to, to be with her parents and you know, I stayed home to, to prep for today and do the things that I need to do on Saturdays. And so now I'm, now I'm all alone and left to my own devices and this is where it gets really dangerous. This is where my head can just go in all sorts of places. And I, I sat down in the home office desk and I tried to work and I was unfocused and my thoughts were swirling and everything was just chaotic and I was doing absolutely nothing. And it was one of these days, I don't know if you remember yesterday, the Santa Anas were kicking up and it was crystal clear and the wind was just blowing and swirling and the sun was bright. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to take this thing outside. And a friend of mine had given me a real Cuban cigar. Now, I don't know if you're going to think less of me for this, but I took my nice, fat, dark Cuban cigar outside with my Kindle and with my notepad and everything that I needed and a glass of iced tea. And I sat, I even put on shorts, which is scary because these legs have not seen the sun since Mary and I went to Hawaii two years ago. But I thought, I'm going to get as much vitamin D as I possibly can. And I put a chair in the sun and I sat there and, and just smoking that cigar. I was just looking at the thing, you know, and just thinking, this came from a third of the world away. Who rolled it? Who grew it? Who did this? That? And when I smoked it, I could actually taste the soil. Now, that might not sound good to you smoking dirt, but I'm telling you, <laughs> it just, it was like all Cuba was right there with me, you know, and it was a lovely smoke. And then I would just sit and close my eyes and the wind would kick up. And I could feel it just swirling around me and the sound of the trees, the, the warmth of the sun. You know, it's like I could almost feel that the earth was breathing, that God was breathing in and out through me, just being out in that sunshine. And the ideas started coming and I was writing them down and then I just sit there and it brought me back from the edge, brought me back from the brink. You know, it was a decision to go out and connect, not with a person, but with nature. You know, with God's presence in the wind. These are the choices that we can make. This is what it looks like. This is what participation is. It's just a moment-by-moment choice to be connected rather than to be apart. It's not theological, you know. It's not intellectual. It's just being. It's just connecting. That's what this is about. This is the, the shape of the way it works, moment by moment this way. You know, a few people have asked me how I'm doing, and I really appreciate that. I've seen a few random connections, texts and emails and contacts of people who know what's going on, and that also has been affirming those kind of contacts. And a few people said, how are you doing? How are you, how are you keeping it together with all this stuff going on, all this craziness? And I said, you know what? I am an adherent of the Brother Lawrence School. And for those of you who don't know who Brother Lawrence was, he was a 17th century French monk who got stuck in the kitchen because he wasn't educated when he joined the monastery. And he was resentful of that at first because he didn't want to be a cook, he wanted to be a monk. And he resented having to be stuck in the kitchen. But after years of service in the kitchen, he realized God was just as present in the kitchen as he was in the chapel. And in fact, for him, he was more present because there he was of service. There he was doing something for his community. And after a while, he realized he didn't need all that other stuff. And he quit all the forms of outside devotion, prayer times and everything, except that which was obligated by the rule of his house. And he quit spiritual direction. He didn't need it anymore. He practiced a continual, seamless, and streaming presence of God. And that's the name of his little book, The Practice of the Presence of God. He says, you know, we think we have to invent all these ways of coming at God, but it's not so. All we have to do is do what we normally do all day long, but for the love of God. That means participating in God's life and presence. And it's a sacred act. Just doing that, throughout the day, day in and day out, is what has been keeping me from being a puddle on the floor. But I've been stressed, and I've been sad, and I've been depressed. I mean, all of that stuff is there, but I just keep choosing to come back, and eventually I can break through. Eventually I can come back to ground again and connect again. And that's what it's all about. That's the way this thing works. 
You know? Moment by moment, choices define Jesus' kingdom. Our participation in the moments is kingdom. Now, what I also realized is I didn't start out this way. I didn't start out with the Brother Lawrence School. I didn't start out practicing presence throughout the day. What I started out doing was trying to follow the culture and the practice of the church I was in. The church I landed in 25 years ago when I came back to Christianity after about 15 years off, I just wanted to be a part of the group. I just wanted to be on the inside looking out instead of the outside looking in like I've felt all my life. And so I just did what they told me to do. I just showed up. But then as I started moving moving beyond just a simple Sunday service attendance, then I started going to the Bible studies and the other studies and the workshop. I started to seek out the pastors for counseling. Of course, I became part of the band because that's what I do. And then Marion and I took on the children's ministry and we ran the children's ministry for several years. I also started into pastoral training and all of that. And then beyond the leadership, though, I started my own practice of personal study, contemplative practice, trying to keep things quiet in my apartment. I wasn't married then, so I could keep things quiet in the apartment and practice solitude and practice silence. I began journaling and writing and doing all these things. I wanted to read you just a little bit from Belden Lane's book called The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. And he says, My own efforts at appropriating a spiritual habit of being over the last several years have involved regular nightly practice of desert prayer, that would be wordless contemplative prayer, routine participation in the liturgical life of a faith community, periodic backpacking trips alone into the wilderness, consistent work with an insightful spiritual director, and a disciplined pattern of reading in the classics of the tradition. Now this may sound like a labor-intensive method for realizing certain experiences in my own practice, and one might imagine that in pretending to be a desert monk in the city, my goal is to achieve particular states of desert consciousness. But the long-standing insistence of the tradition is that there is no experience no achievement of consciousness to be sought in any of this. The desert practice of contemplative prayer abandons on principle all experiences of God or the self. It simply insists that being present before God in a silence beyond words is an end in itself. God cannot be had, the desert tradition affirms. If this means laying hold of God by any way of concept, language, or experience. Now, I know this needs a lot more discussion than we're going to be able to give, but here's the the nut. If you follow the contemplative path, that's what I was trying to follow. I was trying to be Thomas Merton. I just wanted to, to live that life. If you follow that for a while, what you realize is that intellectual or experiential acquisition, bringing something in, that's not the destination of the journey. That's not what it's about. You can't acquire or understand or have God. God is kind of like music. Music exists as vibrations in the air for as long as they vibrate and then it's gone again. You're either there, present, listening, or you're not. But you can't have it. You can't own it. You can't hold on to it. And even if you record it and you're holding on to that CD, that's not music. When you play it again, then it's vibrations in the air that just last for as long as they vibrate. God is like that. The expression, the vibrations of the moment that we experience if we're present to them is the end in itself. It's not the acquisition. It's not raising your consciousness. It's just being consciously present. That's what it comes down to. And this is the shape of participation. This is really what we're talking about. For all of you, as you've come to the effect, the first step, of course, is just showing up, taking the first steps into community. And that usually is a Sunday experience, what we're doing here right now. And then Sunday after Sunday, just steeping in the environment, letting principles that you hear over and over again start to uh, just move deeper into your spirit, to to actually get down there where you start to think these fundamental concepts might possibly be true. And then the next step will be to start asking questions. 
Start tracking down some of the leadership, asking questions. Well, how does this work? What's that all about? You know, deepening your contact with people in the community, starting to go to studies during the week, starting to read on your own, maybe seeking counseling from some of the leadership here. And then more participation. You begin your own devotions on your own that nobody sees. You're not doing it in the group. No one's going to give you any pat on the back. It's your own devotions. What you do when no one is looking. Your prayer life, both spoken prayer, contemplative prayer, more study on your own, the practice of silence and solitude, and an introspection. That's the process of increased participation that will take you on a journey. The first step, just coming here on Sundays and listening, that's mostly in the head. As we start to dig in, ask questions, and connect beyond just this group experience is moving into that deeper participation that will take us to the heart-to-heart connection that is beneath words and beneath the understanding. I want to read you a second passage. How are we doing on time? We're not doing too bad. This one's quick from Richard Rohr. As we turn toward participation, we can now see that most of religious and church history has been largely preoccupied with religious ideas about which you could be wrong or right. When faith is all about ideas, you do not have to be part of it. Keep your uniform clean. You just need to talk correctly about it. You never have to dive in and illustrate that spiritual proof is only in the pudding, only in the effect of your life, right? The spiritual question is this. Does one's life give any evidence of an encounter with God? Does one's life give any evidence of an encounter with God? Is there any effect to your encounter with God? Does this encounter bring about in you any of the things that Paul describes as the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, trustfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you different from your surroundings? Or do you reflect the predictable cultural values and biases of your group? The participatory participatory turn is learning from concrete practices, personal disciplines, and interactive dialogues that change the seer and allow and encourage the encounter itself, the tutor, the training wheels that will take you into the encounter. Many Christians today are rediscovering prayer beads, rosary, prayer of quiet, icons, contemplative sits, teze chants, charismatic prayer, walking meditation, extended silence, solitude, and disciplined spiritual direction. Up to now, you could have a doctorate in theology as a Catholic or a Protestant and not really know how to pray or even enjoy prayer, experience union, although you could recommend it officially to others and maybe even define it. Now we know that we must personally live our faith, participate. I hope you will dive into your faith and experiment with ways of opening yourself to transformation, to encounter, to conscious participation in God, in the faith of Jesus. When it comes right down to it, relationship is only as good as our participation in it. See that? Look at Second Peter. Last citation here. Chapter 1, verse 3. Divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of God, who called us to share in the divine glory and goodness. In bestowing these gifts, God has given us the guarantee of something very great and wonderful to come. Through them, you'll be able to share in the divine nature. Now listen to it from the message and see if it brings it home better. Everything that goes into a life of pleasing God has been miraculously given to us by getting to know personally and intimately the one who invited us to God. The best invitation we ever received. We are also given absolutely terrific promises to pass on to you, your tickets to participation in the life of God's message. What is Peter trying to say here? First of all, most importantly, everything we need, we already have. Everything we need to accomplish this participation in the faith of Jesus, in God's life, we already have. There is no acquisition. There is nothing we need to get. We are already complete statements, complete sentences as you sit right there now. Secondly, to know God 
is participation in his glory and in his goodness. And what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to participate in God's glory? It means to mirror his values, to mirror his life, to live as he lived. In other words, to participate in it fully. Knowing God is participation in God's life as acted out within our community, in our physical relationships. Make no mistake, spirituality is going to be practiced physically. If you're trying to only practice spirituality in the abstract, not getting your uniform dirty, you're not going anywhere. It has to be practiced in the messy details and relationships of our lives. And third, participation is the gift that promises more participation in God's nature and in God's life. It's all about participation. Relationship is participation. Participation in connection. That spirituality, that physical spirituality that the Jews believed in so firmly, you had to immerse yourself in life, must be practiced moment by moment with each choice we make. Without spirituality, without its home, quote-unquote, without its context, within the community, within this way of living together, is meaningless. What does spiritual practice mean if it's not doing something, having an effect in our lives and the lives of the people closest to us? Now, in order to do this, there must be a felt need. There is some effort that needs to be put forth here to not just show up on Sundays, but then to ask questions, to reconnect, to start your own study, your own devotions. There's real discipline, real structure. Some of it that you will participate in, some of it that you will create for yourself and participate in. There has to be a reason that you would do that, a felt need. Maybe it's a trauma, maybe it's a pain, but maybe it's just, I don't know, just a level of discontent, a divine dissatisfaction. Maybe it's just a curiosity. Is there anything more than this, more than I am experiencing right now? So, my prayer for you all right now is that you will be divinely dissatisfied just enough to want to engage, to participate, participate fully in God's life and this faith of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there is a part of us that is only complete when connected to you. We know that at our deepest levels. We feel that. But we can spend most of our lives distracting ourselves from that. I would ask this morning that you would help us to undistract, to just focus right in on that part of us that knows that there is something more, that there is a deeper participation, a deeper way that we can connect with you and that we would start to take whatever steps we need to take in our lives to explore, find out how it works, to find out what this is all about in our own way. Not anyone else's, but our own way. In connection with you. In concert with your principles and your teaching. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for making this available to us that we can actually participate in your life just as mind-blowing in and of itself. But you love us And we need to have that more and more experienced and proven to us so that we can trust. Thank you, Father, for everything that you give us. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.